Welcome to Conversation Mill. My name is Rebecca Dale and I am the host of the show. I have a passion for sharing how the creation of thriving local economies benefits us all. I'm fascinated by how we come together to form our communities on a macro and micro scale and how our histories and stories when shared can not only motivate and inspire, but can facilitate understanding. As our communities, large and small, bring back a more progressive Main Street, individuals are stepping out to pursue their passions and local leaders are pushing back against corporate greed. It's time to engage these community leaders and small business owners in conversation. What are the driving forces behind their courage and success and how can we continue to build communities that embrace diversity, support the local economy, and create a healthy ecosystem for the culture at large? Join us now in conversation. Today, I am in conversation with artist and sculptor Wellsy, aka Nick Wells. His art studio walls set the tone for our conversation painted in bright colors with encouraging messages like every day getting better, Wellesley's unique style brings a lightness and reminds the viewer to take themselves in life a little less serious. Wellesley is the artist in residence at Onda's Resort on Maui, where guests can not only view his art at the gallery or throughout the resort, but also create their own Wellesley-inspired piece. Wellesley shares with us his journey to turning his art into a business, advice for young artists, and how his wife, Chieko, has been the driving force behind elevating his brand. Join us now in conversation. Let's start with what does art mean to you? Life for me, the art is like, it's just like one big project of learning and getting better and making things. And it's kind of just what I've always done. So it's kind of everything I do. If it's a little too broad. (laughs) Let me narrow it down a little bit. What do you think art's role in the community is? I think it brings together a community, you know, it kind of brightens up a place. It makes people feel inspired around where they're at, you know, especially like with the outdoor mural stuff like that, you know, you, you can see it transform a community, you know, they do it all over the country where once the artists kind of move in and start painting walls and it brings life into a space and the community starts coming together and it just, it's, it's not the, like the backbone of the community, but it kind of helps inspire the community, helps make it grow. And it's kind of in that, you know, positive direction. I think we're sitting in your studio and the walls are covered with pops of color and art and words and images have you always surrounded yourself with art, with color? Yeah, I growing up, you know, all the walls in my parents' house were covered in my dad's paintings. You know, my dad's a really good painter, and he was a graphic designer by trade. And so I was always just art on the walls and encouraged to do art and, you know, very supported in that realm. So, and then, you know, as I got older and I started having my own space to work in, I realized that the environment in which you're in kind of dictates how your art comes out. Sure. And at the time, as I started figuring this out, I was living in my van and wasn't like the brightest of times, but we were making uh, surfboards and a lot of girls were ordering boards 
and ordering bright colors. And so the leftover materials from the surfboards, I would just paint on the walls and cover the walls just because that's what I did. And I noticed like I started getting happier and I liked kind of being in these like bubbles of color and it just kind of makes me go in and get, it's like just a, you know, jolt of energy and electricity. So it's kind of like a way to, it's like my little battery, you know, if I cover the walls with yeah. paint, I go in and I know exactly where I am, what I'm supposed to do, like, and it just keeps me happy. You know, if everything was dark, it'd be kind of, for me, I'm so like sensitive to all that. It's like, if it was dark and gloomy, I'm sure the, you know, all the fish's faces would be frowning and yeah. you know, it just wouldn't be that, you know, wouldn't be that, ex- wouldn't be that fun. And, you know, I yeah. kind of, you know, my artwork isn't super serious. I'm not trying to convey like any message or, you know, anything like that. I just want people to look at it, understand it really easily without having to feel stupid for not getting it mm-hmm. and smiling and enjoying it. You know, I think that if you can put a little like smile on someone's face and like, you know, lighten them up a little bit, that can do so much, you know, I'm not trying to change the world with my art or anything, but just a little, little happiness, a little breath of color and life. And, you know, if it can make someone feel happy, that's like, it's great. That's all I'm looking for. So there's so much in just what you said that I kind of want to unpack and dig into with you. So let's start with, you mentioned your father was an artist and a graphic designer as well. Did you feel pressure to follow in those footsteps or were there ever any comparisons, his art versus your art in your mind? Oh, absolutely. I, art was really frustrating for me for a long time because my dad was so good and I'm, you see my artwork, you know, it's not like I'm painting the Mona Lisa, you know, it's like, I mean, it's, you know, well thought out and well executed, but it's not like, you know, my dad can paint realism, you know, he paints just beautiful stuff. And so I was always kind of compared myself to that. Like I can't paint realism. I can't, I can't do that. So it took me a while to kind of figure out how to do what I like to do at the the best way I could do it. And so I think growing up, there was like a little bit of conflict within me. Not like my dad was ever like, you got to paint realistic or, mm-hmm. you know, he, you know, they're always supportive. Like, Oh yeah, it looks great. You know? So there wasn't, conflict between me and or him and me there's more a conflict with just me being like ah i i can't paint like that like how do i what do i do this isn't good because it's not like my dad's you know yeah. so so you were your own competition or your yeah own this yeah worst story, of, story of my life yeah i think most artists are their strongest critic you know like there's it's hard to look at my work without seeing the flaws and wanting to fix them next time. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why sometimes in my work, you'll see like, you know, I've done a moose B like, you know, quite a few times over the years. And it's the reason why it gets done again is because I want to make it better. I want to like, you know, dial it in. There's always something that I didn't do right. Or I liked on one or one part on one and another part on another and kind of putting them together. So it's kind of fun to evolve with the artwork and kind of critique it reapproach it and do it again and just be trying to do it better each time. How would you describe your art since you're kind of talking about your dad's art was uh, realism and yours is so different. You had to find your, your niche. And I think in my humble opinion, I'm not an art critic, right? But your unique style that you have, how, how do you describe the art that you create? Uh, Whimsical, fun, bright, happy, loose, funny, uh, not serious, I think. Uh, so it's, uh, basically an abstract painted background 
with a illustration over it that's very graphic and you know black outlines and just really pops and i think that comes from my the graphic design sort of background that i've had and i grew up drawing on surfboards too so that really like black lines pop bold colors you know that's kind of the illustrations and then in art school i went to uh manoa and i was really into abstract expressionism because it's mm. like kind of you get a you know there's a lot of movement with your arms there's energy that you're putting into it and there's not it's like opposite of realism so there's probably a little bit of like rebellion in that yeah so the as the art style kind of unfolded it was I loved having that, like being able to paint abstract, but then being able to get in there kind of graphic and do that, that images, the images that just really pop and like stand off, stand off the piece. So I think I just got kind of lucky in how that all worked out. A lot of your images reflect where we live, which is on Maui. Is that what inspires your art or where does the inspiration for the different images come from? Yeah, I think every artist, is inspired by their surroundings. You know, I don't think you'd be living in like New York city and be drawing coral fish all day, you know? So it's kind of one of those things where you just go out into the world and you know, what we do is we go to the beach, we surf, we snorkel, we swim, we do all the fun stuff. And then and come to the studio, it's, Oh, I want to draw that fish I saw today, you know? And so it's just kind of just a natural, natural way that I think any artist creates their work is they're just surrounded by their environment. So that's where I like the bright colors come into play. I want to, I like being happy and bright colors make me happy. So putting those all around me, you know, it just kind of all feeds into, feeds into what the finished art piece comes out. Kind of stepping back and going back. We talked a little bit about obviously your dad being artist and in the process of you kind of differentiating yourself from that, but you mentioned struggles and I think with any artist, we think of like the starving artist, right? Whether it's a, yeah. a visual medium, a writer, a poet, whatnot. Um, so was there a starving artist period for you? And what what did that look like? What was that part of your life that like? That was between, you know, my wife's here right now. So she's just, <laughs> <laughs> she's so glad she didn't meet me then. Uh, yeah, there was, I think you... It's all, I mean, I'm sure some artists never had to do the struggling artist thing, but I think for artists, you kind of want to have to get to that point in order to like build it up from, from nothing sort of thing. You know, like, I, you know, I didn't like grow up poor or anything. Like it wasn't, my whole life was a struggle. It's like, I needed to create that struggle mm. myself, you know, and build from that and that happened in like my mid to late twenties. I was living in my van building surfboards and not making very much money, but spending all my time doing art. And that's when, that's when my art really like kind of came together as this is me. This is what I like to do. It's part craft, part art, you know, with the, the way it's built, it's built just like a surfboard. So it kind of all came together then living in a van and, you know, kind of doing that struggling artist thing. But and it, was that because you fully gave yourself to your art? Were, yeah, that's, were you like, I mean, this, that's, I am going to, I have this to do is, this. Yeah. yeah. And so everything needs to be geared towards growing myself as an artist. And it makes it really easy when you don't have any rent or overhead mm -hmm. or, you know, I lived out front of the, the surfboard factory and I spent all day, every day there just 
making surfboards and making art. And that's when the big shift change. It's like that once you commit a hundred percent to it and put in the work, it's going to, it's going to work. Like there's just no way you can't give a hundred percent into something and have it not work. And I think luckily for me, I didn't have to live in a van very long and it slowly started to build and grow and, you know, it worked out from there, but that struggling, that starving artist thing is real. I think the trick for artists is just to not make sure that that's their identity, you mm-hmm. know, that their whole world doesn't, you don't have to stay in that, starving artist stage you can be there enjoy it use that time to practice your art learn it grow make figure out how to make it work and then i mean it's a hard transition to make but move out of that struggling artist into no i am an artist this is what my artwork is this is the value of my artwork and so i think that's a starving artist struggle that artists have is not making that transition into the non-starving artist, I think. I like that you brought up the value of the work, because that was one of the questions I had for you, is I think it's really hard for people to put a price on their art. Yes, yes. Because either maybe they don't value themselves yet in what they're creating. Um, That was a big part for me for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Can Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think when you're starting out, you you're in pursuit of like, um, acceptance or like for people liking your artwork, like so badly you want people to like what you do and what you're giving your life to so badly that you'll do anything for them to just like it and have it. You know, like I just give away so many pieces when I was starting out. Cause like, Oh my gosh, you like it. That's like the biggest compliment you just gave. You just made my week. Just have it. I don't, I don't want the money. I'm just, you you validated me by Mm -hmm. liking it, you know? And I think that as it's hard to create or hard to put more value on just like the fact that people like it. So, yeah. What advice would you give to a young artist who's looking at a collection of pieces they've done and being like, I need to put a price point on this and I'm just stuck. My opinion or my theory on that is probably not matched up with everyone's. Um, but I always think, cause I started out doing $20 originals and they probably cost me $10 to make. So I was sure. making like, you know, next to nothing or, you know, if someone was running the books, I was probably losing money, but I just was enjoying it so much. That I had to do it. But I think that starting low so you can actually sell pieces because if you don't price your pieces right to where people want to buy them or what they feel it's worth or anything, and you don't sell, you're going to, you're going to take that really hard and personally and be like, it's not good enough. It's not right. It might be right. You just, you only have 10 pieces. So people are afraid to spend $500 or, you know, the higher prices. And if you go low and you sell all those pieces, well, next time you can raise them up a little bit, but you can't go, go out and try to sell your piece for $10,000. And then next week be like, no one bought it okay, I'll sell it for 50. Like that doesn't really work. So just kind of start at the bottom just so you can sell a piece, have that interaction, that, that transaction and, uh, get practice at that, you know, like, cause there's, we don't know what to do when we're artists and we're starting out. So getting through that whole process of making art, pricing it, showing it, selling it, doing that transaction, like you need to go through all those steps Mm -hmm. thousands of times. So the sooner you start doing those steps, the better you're going to be at it. And if you start low, you're going to be selling 
more pieces than you would if you're starting really high. So I always think just, you know, if you're doing your first art fair or something like that, like price them so low that people will want to buy them. And then great. You have to go make more stuff. You yeah, know? yeah. But when you're starting out, you know, it's like, also it's, encouragement because your stuff's moving. So at yeah, least you're like, okay, was, yeah. like people are taking it for $10. Maybe next weekend I can do 15 or yeah. 20 or whatever. Totally. Like, Oh, I can't sustain this at $10. I'll have to raise my prices, but at least, you know, what you're doing is working mm-hmm. and that you've interacted with people. Now you've done a few sales, like your confidence is up a little bit. And you can, you'll feel more confident saying $15 where when you first start out, you're like, oh my gosh, $15, I can't, I can't charge that much for this, you know? So I think it just kind of helps build confidence and it's like, it's kind of low stakes for everyone involved because the the prices are low. So you're not stressing out about how much something, you know, how do I sell a $300 piece? That's just mind boggling when you're starting out. So yeah, I think just doing a lot of. A lot of sales. <laughs> you see, you seem to be a very outgoing person. And I don't know if you're just extroverted because we're doing a podcast day and so we're talking, or is that your natural, are you more naturally an extrovert or an introvert? Way more introvert. Okay. So I can do the extrovert, but I spend most of my time quiet by myself. Same, same here. Like yeah. I, I can be both when I need to be. I can identify when I need to be, but I would prefer to be introverted. And I bring this up because I think a lot of artists fall into either extremely introverted or like us where they can kind of jump between the two, but probably need a lot of alone time or like time away from the masses to re-energize. How... How did you overcome that? Or I guess how, because I think that's what a lot of people fear, right? Like parking their van outside of a surf board company and what either talking to people coming out with new surfboards or going in and talking to their team and going, Hey, I can hand paint them. You know, like that's, you had to put yourself out there to go have those conversations. You have to put yourself out there to go to an art fair and talk to, you know, 200 people walking through your booth. I think it kind of ties into that starving artist thing where it was a necessity in order to have it grow. Like I didn't, you know, as I had the surfboard company, so we we're making surfboards and, you know, that was kind of the day job, but the day job wasn't a very money-making day job, mm. you know? So it was out of necessity to, to sell pieces and to start, start pushing it. So there was, I mean, the first market I did, it was terrifying. You know, I drank way too much cause I was, you know, not prepared to go out and talk to people about art yeah. or anything, you know? And, um, so that helped, but <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy to do. And you know, you get better at it with time, but those first few markets were like just racked with anxiety and f- fear and, you know, insecurities and yeah, it was terrifying. And then the next day I would just be like completely floored, drained, like mm-hmm. couldn't do anything social, wouldn't want to talk to anyone. And then, but then, you know, if you price your pieces enough to where people are interested in it and the stuff's interesting enough for people to look at, it's like that, that feed, that'll feed you enough to want to come back and do it Mm -hmm. again. You know, it'd be really hard if you're extremely introverted and you go out and do a art show or festival and you have a terrible response. That would be really hard. I think for that, for someone like that. Cause you're like, Oh my gosh, it wasn't, it wasn't a success. And I think that's probably where a lot of people kind of hit that, 
that first roadblock, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that for, if that happens, like you just got to go out and try it again. Like it wasn't until I was 27 where I really started selling art pieces at a consistent rate, you know? So it's like, it doesn't happen overnight and it's a ton of work and that's why not everyone does it is because it's exhausting, humiliating, like terrifying. There's so many parts to it that go into it that you kind of have to learn how to overcome or else you kind of end up just making art pieces that stack up in the corner. Yeah. Can you walk us through after that period in your life? Because now you're an artist in residency at the Andas here on Maui. So can you kind of take us through, you, you just mentioned around age 27, you were starting to sell consistently between then and now, what was the path? So I started selling consistently enough where I could stop doing labor on the surfboards is a friend of mine and I, who had the surfboard company and I would do a lot of labor, the fiberglassing of the surfboards. Mm -hmm. And after doing maybe a dozen, half a dozen markets, people were buying the artwork enough that I could stop doing a lot of the labor on the surfboards. And so that really, really sent it into, I have to do this. I have to make it work and do it. And started making more and more pieces and just devoting everything to it. And then getting into a couple galleries, doing the, all the art fairs, all the art festivals. And my growth was, I, you know, I got into a lot of places, but I was selling a lot of pieces, but my pieces were priced so low Mm. and it was really too much work in order to kind of maintain that. And so I guess I kind of started to have to figure out how to make my pieces better and worth more money and do a little bit bigger pieces. Cause I, I mean, I started out doing six by eight sure, tiny pieces, you know? And so I started doing like larger pieces, 24 by 32s and stuff like that. And it grew, you know, I started going in some galleries and stuff. And then, you know, I got lucky cause I met my wife and, you know, I had galleries and I was selling commissions out of my studio and it was pretty small time. Like it was fine for like a surfer dude on the North shore, like doing his thing. Yeah. And you know, when I met my wife, Chieko, she came in and was like, you're not selling that for that price. And <laughs> she's really good at sales and business and you'll talk to her, but she transformed that whole, the business side aspect that I was completely lacking and had no interest in. You know, I was like, okay, I can figure out how to like do invoices with the gallery and kind of do all that stuff, but I hated doing it. Sure. And I was getting by, I was having fun. It was, everything was great, but she really transformed the business aspect of it. And that's where like, it was really hard at first for me to like handle that sort of like charging more for stuff and doing it professionally. Cause I was, you know, flying by the seat of my pants and yeah. So she showed me how to have it be a business and kind of remove the artist from the business side mm-hmm. for me, like yeah. going, okay, this is business stuff. And then this is the art stuff. And from there, um, yeah, she was just pushing me to make better pieces, you know, cause when I first started out, it was a lot of just black lines with just a few colors on it, you know, and it's, it's grown since then. You can see the coral fish yeah. piece there. And so she was able to, 
you know, kind of raise up the price and actually like create a business infrastructure around it that can handle, that could handle growth. Like, oh, I wasn't in a situation where I could handle any growth. And so that was, you know, that was a, that was a huge learning step for me in the business side. And then after a year and a half of that, we did the artisan residency at the Four Seasons on Oahu and launched that program there. And then we were in contact. The Ondas approached us about doing artwork in their gift shop and stuff like that. And the conversation got rolling and they talked about doing a, a gallery there and the gallery opened up and we were kind of flying back and forth here from the North shore on Oahu. And then after a few months of that, we we're just like, Oh, we should just be living on Maui. It's, yeah. it's almost easier to get to Honolulu from Maui than it is from the North shore. Sure. So yeah, made that move and the Ondas has been great. And yeah, it's really fun having your own gallery. Cause you kind of get it. There's a constant source of like wall space and needing to create. So like there's this never ending needing to make stuff, which I always like it's, I need to have like a goal and a project and what I'm trying to do and knowing I have a space to go put it and show it really helps, like helps the motivation of, of and, making art. And with the artist in residency programs, and I think this might be really great for young artists is how do those conversations go? If you're approaching a hotel in this in, instance or a resort, is it, is there a, um, value proposition there of here's what I bring with my art to your resort? Or is it more of, Hey, I'm an artist. Let me submit my name. Because I think that's such a great opportunity for so many artists, especially artists that are maybe like indigenous to where they live and have, you know, tourist things or people like you who are creating images that are, I mean, these are, um, souvenirs of maybe somebody's once in a lifetime yeah. experience on Maui. I think that, like a, or is this a good time to, is this that's a, a good way time better to question bring your for wife Chieko? in? Like she's the one who made that happen. I can't say that I was the yeah. mastermind behind that. I kind of try to stick to the art stuff and she yeah. makes sure that the art that I make gets out into the world. Yeah. So that's a way better question for her. Do you want, do you want to slide in and, Jo join us for just real quick. Hi. Hi. Um, yeah, so I think that it, for different artists, it's it's going to be dependent on where they're at and what their ultimate goal is. Um, for example, the Four Seasons Ko'olina on Oahu, they we created this artist in residency program with Wellesley as like the first artist there and um, created an installation program. But their overall goal was to integrate more art from within the community of Oahu mm -hmm. into their specific program. And so they hosted a weekly art walk that was held by the resort. And then it invited all different artists from different stages to be able to come do exactly what Wellesley was talking about, having these art markets. So allowing artists mm. to then create their own community because all these artists would gather together and then they would sell. It didn't mean all of them would become an artist in residence, but it gave them opportunity to start to build connections. And then as they grow as artists, then that residency might appear. Um, ours is a very unique situation at the Ondas as we created this program with them wanting to have um, like his art prints, but we don't 
we don't do that. We sell fine art. And so a gallery was really the only option, but really what they were looking for was a gallery. So we were able to create a program in that sense that his unique style fits the Andaz. Andaz means unique branded styles, like this unique style. So just really that collaboration worked. And so I think that that's a possibility for a lot of artists to be able to find that right connection. It doesn't have to necessarily be resort. It can be something as simple as, um, you know, a restaurant or what fits them because every community has different needs. And so, um, an artist in residence program can work for anyone, but it, is going to be unique to individuals and um, whoever's going to be hosting it. Really finding that niche that aligns with what maybe your art mm-hmm. message or what your art kind of radiates. And your your purposes need to align. Mm-hmm. Um, for the Andaz, it, it is a lot about the Andaz um, Resort in Maui is um, creating experience for people. And that is something that in our gallery, we're able to um, create a story with experience. So not mm-hmm. only do people come into the Andaz and they're seeing this beautiful view of Maui, but then it's also surrounded by this super unique artwork that's throughout the resort. And then when they come into the gallery, we offer experiential art. So we offer art classes that bring people in to make collaborative art with something that Wellesley's already made. Um, so that's a cool. lot of our purpose is to create experience because that's what creates memories and those are the memories that you look back on fondly and smile hence if you decide to pick up a piece of art that like brings all that in so it just depends on you know what your why is so now that I have both of you here together (laughs) (laughs) you mentioned a big turning point in the trajectory of your art career was when you met your wife Chieko Uh, can you guys share with our listeners how you guys met (laughs) Uh oh yeah I'm (laughs) So bad at directions. So bad. So even with Google or whatever maps, it says turn right, I go left. I'm really, really bad at directions. And so I was physically lost and ended up at a very early time in the morning um, and his his workspace, which he never varies. Like he said, he lives in front of it. So <laughs> he doesn't go far from it. For the record, I wasn't living in wasn't the living van at the time. Okay. <laughs> I was living beachfront at Sunset Beach. Yeah. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Um, so I was lost and looking for directions and somebody pulled up in a white Ford truck and he popped out and is like very handsome man with blue eyes. Um, and it was the only other person that could ask directions. So I asked him for directions. Yeah, and I knew where to go because this was, this was in the Wailua Sugar Mill in front of my shop, and she was going to a she had a coffee business at the time, and she was asking where the coffee place was, and I was like, well, I just so happen to be walking down there right now to get a cup of coffee, so I'll walk down there with you, and we chatted, and I went back to this. She found her spot, and I went back to the studio, and I made a little art piece that had a cup of coffee on it with the name of her coffee company, and on the back of the art piece, I wrote, um, "Your smile made my day." And then I wrote my phone number and then I wrote a little arrow pointing to the number and I said, just in case. And I waited till I, I saw the back of her car open or I, then I went outside and her car was gone. I was like, oh, I missed her. <laughs> and as I walked back to my studio, I could see her car parked in another spot. And I was like, oh, there's a car. So I snuck over there. I put it in the back of her car and she had paint in the on the mat of her car. I was like, oh, if she's an artist, like, <laughs> yeah, it's on. And uh, she was. So it worked out. Great. But then I went back to my shop and I could see her car like the whole day of working. And we met seven in the morning and she was there for like, 
I don't know, 10 hours or something. And I had like gone out the night before. I was just in there to get something and go back home. And so I ended up just like painting the whole day. It was like probably the most productive paint day I had. Cause I was like, I just want <laughs> to wait to see if she sees that and then comes back and finds me at the shop. And you know, she never did. And uh, yeah, but got a phone call a month later and she was like, do you want to get juice or something? And I said, yeah. Actually, I said, thank you. I wanted to drop him off coffee because literally I got this art piece in the back of my car and I was like, oh, that's... but it made me smile every day. And so I said that I would like to, you know, drop you off some coffee. This art piece made me smile every day. Then I was like, well, he was very handsome. And I was like, but if you're single and available, keyword and available, available yep. then I'd like to have juice. So it became available. So I became available that night <laughs> <laughs> and I got a voicemail back very specifically saying, I'm so glad you called and I'd really like to have juice. I'd like to have juice. And then we made a date yep. and that was it. That is a beautiful story. <laughs> I love that. Now you guys are, um, also business partners. Is that how you would describe the business side of your relationship? I'm an employee. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I work for a <laughs> Okay. Yeah. I think that's right. <laughs> um, no, we're partners. I feel like we have divvied off um, our strong suits and what he's really good at. He's the one you want to pick for Pictionary and I'm the one you want. When... To run your business. Yeah, to run your business. <laughs> How did morphing that part of your relationship work? Because obviously you're, you know, you're living together it was so smooth and seamless. We never fought at all. Oh, that, that's amazing. <laughs> no, it, was, it was hard. Yeah, there was definitely... Because she was always trying to raise the prices. And I was like, I'll die. I won't eat food if you raise these to these prices. And it was just total clash. And then she was trying to get me organized. And I was like, what receipts? You know, like, why would I keep those? Like, don't, doesn't everyone else keep the... Like, people sell it, keep the receipts? So, yeah, there was a lot of... I was a headache. For sure, for her. yeah. <laughs> I will say though, he was. It's so hard to let go of something, and that's like you've built it. And when I stepped in, he had built a brand. Like he was in significant galleries at that time, and people knew who Wellesley was um, or who Wellesley is, and he had a name distinguished. So I can also see how that would be really hard to let that go. And I appreciate that he trusted me enough. He like kind of just gave a few minor suggestions, like don't give it away for free and just see what happens. Yeah, that um, worked. That worked that really worked. well. Yeah. So I just did a few things that built trust. And yeah. so then slowly just more and more of it came into my hands. And really it, he told me what his goal was. It's like, I'd like to sell a million dollars worth of art. So I just took what he told me he wanted uh -huh. and um, brought to his attention that in order to sell a million dollars worth of art, you have to raise your prices, you're going to have to pay taxes, and you have to run it like a real business. Because if you shortcut things, you're really just shortcutting yourself. So if you think like, oh, I'm just not going to report this, or I'm not going to do this because it's going to save me $500, well, you're missing out on the other, you know, $850,000 you could be making. Mm. Um, so you really have to like tell yourself, if this is really what I want, then these are steps that I have to take. And so that's what, that's what he did. It worked out. She, she proved herself very quickly. And I think that helped out a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, she, she knew how to run a business and how to do that. So it didn't take long for me to realize, oh, she knows way more than I do. So I should just stay out of that and say yes, you know. 
I think that if an artist, actually, this is anyone with like a talent. And I think for Wellesley, I saw the talent. I saw the potential um, and I believed in it. And mm. I think a big part of it is finding a partner, um, whether it is, you know, we're married, but whatever kind of partner that is, um, somebody that believes in it, because really like when you have that person that's cheering you on all the time, it really does boost that confidence and it encourages you to take risks. Yeah. And it allowed me to, you know, share with him, like, I know you think that this is worth $75. And I think this could sell for $250. So let me just try this and see. Um, also, you know, and you're like, Oh my gosh, we sold something for $250. Yeah, it was, I mean, obviously I knew what was going to happen, but you know, I think it's having that person that sees it. Also, mm-hmm. I knew what he wanted to do. Um, you know, his goal was to build big pieces. I want to do sculptures. I want to do these large pieces. So really like we need to move from this stage of, of art into this. So like knowing what you really want and then having that business partner to encourage the growth mm-hmm. in order to help it move that way. I think that's been super valuable for us. Like I know what his overall big picture goal is. And so even when he forgets what it is, like we're still moving the ship forward. Yeah. <laughs> Someone's always man in the ship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How does the dynamic change when, so now you're married, you have, uh, your, your business partners, and then you also have a son. How, (laughs) how does that, I mean, that just throws so much more into the dynamic, right? How, what is that dynamic? How is that dynamic and how has it changed maybe your art and then how you guys work together? Our, our business meetings are now about a minute and a half long and there are, (laughs) Three quarters of a sentence. Mm-hmm. So stuff does happen slower for sure because, you know, kind of most of the time we have, you know, we're at home so we can talk about the business and stuff while we're cooking dinner, but everything gets cut up so shortly. So that's changed because before we are living together with the studio underneath our house and it was just like 100% immersed all the time in it and that moves stuff together, moves stuff along really quickly. But now it's a little more chopped up and sporadic. and Yeah. So, I mean, I've always been an entrepreneur. And so my brain is always going, going, going. I love talking business. I love building. I love seeing growth. And he's super similar. So we can, like, talk business all, all the time. time. And we do. And, like, like we love it. And that's, like, what we do. And then Duke has been, like, such a breath of fresh air of reminding us, to not just talk business. So sometimes we're like super excited about something or trying to talk about something and he keeps interrupting. And it's like, you know what? Actually, I will just talk to you on Monday about this at the art studio. And it's, it's a nice, um, like, thank you universe for knowing exactly what we need. We Mm -hmm. need a reprieve and it's called a toddler. It's great. Um, so I feel like he's been like a natural piece of that. And, I don't know though. That's just personalities. We love talking about our business. We love Mm -hmm. having ideas and growing. That's not for everybody. And there was a season when we were transitioning off of, um, we had a big property on Oahu. We also had an art studio on Oahu, our like frame shop on Oahu. Like it was all in one. We were transitioning from that over here to Maui and the gallery was already running. We were building out this studio and we had just like we had a trip to Japan. We had um, a big art show in Japan. And during that time, we decided to take a pause break and we were not going to talk business. 
anytime we weren't within the business walls because we were kind of overwhelmed and overloaded. And I think that that was helpful for us during that season. That's the only time I've ever felt overwhelmed with too much and we've had Mm -hmm. to take a pause. And so I feel like it's important to listen to that. If you have that with your partner or yourself, just like knowing where there's boundaries, like this is going to be a spot where we just keep it about our family life or whatever. Um, I think that's, but that's been the only time and um, that has definitely been released. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We're back to our normal. Just a couple questions to, to wrap up with you. Was there a mentor in your art career um, or was there somebody besides your dad that was coming up alongside you, encouraging you or that you looked up to or that you went to for advice? There's like people along the way that played different roles at different times. Like on the North Shore, I worked before starting my own surf- before starting my own surfboard company, I worked at Charlie Walker's surfboard factory. And there I learned just a ton about, you know, making stuff with fiberglass and resin and foam and all the techniques. And then, so that really helped that. I think that, uh, I met Heather Brown when I was probably like 28 years old, she came into the surfboard factory to order a surfboard and saw what I was doing. And there's, so friendly and open and nice about sharing tips on art and like Mm -hmm. the art world. And at that point I'd kind of grown up with, you know, you're all, you'll only be famous when you're dead or you're, you can't sell. Like my dad kind of had that old mentality of like, you can only make paintings on canvas with oil, you know, like just kind of limited thinking and meeting them and seeing their studio and the business they ran. It was just like, that was, that one's the light turned on and was like, I need to do this like way more serious. I can do, there's so much more I can do with this and just make paintings and sell them at a, a market. So I think, I think those two were extremely pivotal in like the, the things that came along. And then, I mean, there's like a, a ton of artists that inspire me, mm-hmm. you know, as growing up as a kid, I was always into Drew Brophy's artwork. He would draw on surfboards and I would just copy his artwork, you know, at home after school and, just practice doing that. And so tons of artwork or tons of artists that inspire me. But I think that like those two, Heather Brown and Charlie Walker were kind of like the art side. And then I needed to learn like the craft side of it. And so I think those were the two most pivotal. Charlie was just always so he's not like a encouraging type of guy, but he wasn't discouraging at all. Like he was always into projects I was making. I was making like a 14 foot tall two at a llama at a shop. And he was just like, <laughs> you know, right in front of the door, like just being an idiot. And he's like, Oh, that's cool. You know? And from him, that was like totally encouraging, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, he just had a way of like figuring out how to get stuff done and, and make stuff and, you know, just abstract ways of thinking how to, um, execute a task. So I think that was like the craft side of it from him for sure. And you have a podcast as well where you are giving more tips about art to artists. Well, we try or- to do a couple podcasts and then we stopped doing that. I realized it was easier to just make like a little YouTube video, like five or 10 minutes of like the points I'm trying to make. Cause I can just ramble on and on. Like I can talk art and growing your art and all that stuff constantly all day. Yeah. Like I just love it. And it's so much fun. So we figured like, the podcasts were kind of boring. So we're just like trying to make like YouTube clips, like, you know, 
five tips for your first art festival, you know, just breaking it down super easy. Cause I think that when artists are starting out, there's like so little guidance and everything is so big and overwhelming that if you can kind of just break it down to the necessities of like, you know, what you need to, what the basics here, you need a table, you need your art on the walls and, you know, just, you know, there's a list, but so just trying to convey that in a digestible form for artists to kind of help break artists from that initial step of, you know, I have a bunch of cool paintings at my house. I love them. All my friends think they're cool. Like, but I'm too afraid to go outside and show them. And I kind of want to like help break that gap because for me, it took a long time to do that. And I learned a lot of stuff on the way. Like it, it all kind of started from, from nothing. So I can relate to that artist that's doing stuff, wants to get out there in the world, but is too like, timid and insecure or nervous to do it and all the fear and stuff. Like I've had all that. So I know what that's like and hopefully I can kind of help encourage them to just get out there and do it. We sat down today and we had a conversation about your art and your career. If you could sit down with anyone living or dead and have a one-on-one conversation like this, who would that be? With an artist? It doesn't have to be an artist. Oh, wow. Um, I guess I would say artist just to uh, keep it on topic. Picasso would be pretty fun. He seemed like mm-hmm. he was a guy who liked to have fun, make a lot of art. You know, he was breaking boundaries when he was doing it. So he would have fun stuff to talk about with people not liking his artwork. Mm-hmm. So I think that would be really interesting. His story, you know, his stories would be probably pretty interesting, I think. Basquiat would be really cool, you know, but he was alive a little, I think he died later than Picasso, right? Mm -hmm, So so. one of those guys I think would be really fun. Pollock is an artist that I always loved, but he's kind of a crazy drunk. So he probably wouldn't be, probably be fun for like an hour and then (laughs) just get out of control. That could be fun too. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that'd be, that'd be fun. I have such a great memory of being at the Art Institute of Chicago and walking around a corner and Picasso's, I think it's titled The Old Guitarist, but it's in blue. I just remember like walking around the corner and it just being there. When you just stumble across like amazing works like that, they just- They stop you in your tracks. They literally stop you in your tracks. Take the breath out. I remember seeing a Pollock at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art and I remember, and I've always been a fan of Pollock. Like I'm a huge fan of his work. And walked around the corner and I knew his work was there, but I didn't know where it was or anything. And I just walked around and as you turn this corner, one of his huge paintings, you know, untitled number 450 or whatever up on the wall. And it just hit me and I was like, wow, you can see, it's hard to see on a little image or on Mm -hmm. the phone, like the power of the work. But when you see it from 50 feet back, you know, a 10 foot by 15 foot painting, and then you walk all the way close up to it and you see like every drip and dot and piece of paint it's it's pretty spectacular well thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today and sharing a little bit about your career and your art with our listeners uh i really appreciate it yeah no problem it's fun and if you want to check out some of wellsy's art for yourself or purchase pieces you can visit him at wellsy-art.com Thank you for being a listener of Conversation Mill. The podcast is growing, but we need your continued support in the form of comments, likes, and subscriptions. 
If you've enjoyed even one episode, please take two minutes to comment under the episode or the podcast itself, or rate the podcast. Hitting the subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast helps tremendously. Every like and subscribe helps me support local businesses and local nonprofits by giving them a platform to tell their stories. Together, we can foster the understanding, diversity, and economies that make our individual communities flourish while creating our own community here at Conversation Mill. Also, you can join us at conversationmill.substack.com where you can become a member and receive weekly member-only content, including member-only episodes. I look forward to sharing a new conversation with you next week. And as always, thank you for your support.